want you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter, chapter 9. Let's have a word of prayer together. Holy Father, we bow before you to thank you for your love and your mercy in our lives. Thank you that you have been better to us than we could ever imagine and certainly than what we deserve. You, you've been good to us, God. And I pray to you in the name of your son that you will speak to our hearts. Thank you, Father, for opening our eyes. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for meeting our needs. And God, I do pray for that person today who perhaps is struggling a bit, that you will give them encouragement and speak hope to them today. God, take us to where we need to be, Lord. I pray that you'll speak to us. And for that person who's yet to say yes to Jesus, I pray that you will open their spiritual eyes. The gospel would be clear. Make yourself known, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I feel like we need to remind ourselves a bit about what the emphasis is in the gospel of John. Uh, we've been in this series for quite a while, and we're going to stay there for a while. I'll probably take a few breaks and do some shorter series. But the Gospel of John it can be summarized in one word, one word summary, and it's the word believe, believe. Uh, it's interesting that in all the other Gospels, there's various other aspects of Jesus, but in the Gospel of John, uh, John chooses the narratives and the stories and the encounters and all of these things to focus on one thing, and he's forcing decision, you got to believe. Jesus did not come for us to feel neutral about him. He did not, didn't come for us just to be a good example. He came as a savior of the world making a statement that I'm dying on the cross in your place and for your sin, and that requires that we believe. We believe. Now we get to John chapter 9 here, and we're going we're gonna to take the whole chapter there. I'm not going to read all the verses there. I started to separate this into two messages, but, but it's one big story. It's one big encounter, and we'd lose something if we chopped it up. And I've entitled the message today, so who's really blind? So who's really blind? Uh, have you heard the, the, the statement, the phrase, it's become a little bit of a colloquialism today, uh, the expression, hater? Your haters, this kind of thing. Well, it's, it's, it's a euphemism for your critics. It, 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 it's, it's a little softer than what we think of hater. I, I don't think it fully means somebody that disdains you, although it's probably part of it. But it's, it's used as, a, as sort of a euphemism for critics, that people come after you. If you're older than five or six years old, you know that people will like you or dislike you for an assortment of reasons. Some of them are rational, but most of them, to a large part, a large degree, a lot of them are just irrational. People don't like you because of the way you look or where you came from, what color skin you have, or what you don't bring to the table, or who you, really, who you hang out with, and what you said, or what you didn't say, or all of those kinds of things. People just have opinions, and they don't like you for something. They're, they're, they're critics of us. And this is the reason why people-pleasing is such a terrible thing. You've got to be careful of that because if, you're, if you are a people-pleaser, you, you, you just, you've just injected yourself with a, 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 a terrible vaccination that will keep you away from objectivity. We become hostage to what people think and uh, what they conclude about us and what they say about us. And before you know it, you, you're just always hitting a lid 
never experiencing joy and fulfillment in your own heart and life. But people will conclude all kinds of things, and we all have critics. Even the most kind, generous, magnanimous, positive person in the world, believe it or not, you got folks who just don't like you. But this is also true in terms of our walk in relationship with God. How many of you know that not everybody rejoices concerning God's favor and miracles in your life? Not everybody's going to give you a standing ovation because you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Not everybody's going to be happy because God healed you or God blessed you in a certain kind of way. It's amazing what, how sneaky jealousy and envy can be. Where we should be rejoicing, we get blinded and say, well, what about me? How come that's not happening in my life? And how come this is not going on for me? And what should be celebratory becomes a burden. And sometimes we don't like that because it, it says that we need to change. Um, it's fairly common for the people who were close to you to back away from you and even become hostile because of your commitment to Christ. That's not uncommon. Anybody here ever experienced that? Yeah. Bunch of us, you know. It's not that you did anything wrong and maybe it wasn't even that you were all that preachy or whatever. Uh, all of a sudden you changed, and rightly so. All of a sudden your appetites for doing some of the things that you used to do is no longer there. And your very presence becomes an irritant. And the reason it becomes an irritant is because as followers of Christ, we are reminders of the spiritual blindness all around us. Said this a few weeks ago, there, there is, an, you, you, you got to bear with me here, there's a built-in confliction in the Christian life. Built-in. Paul puts it this way, we, we carry with us both a scent and a smell, for those who want to trust or who are engaged and they're interested and they're, they're moving toward the Savior, we are a sweet aroma that draws them. But for those who don't want to, we are repulsive to them. And it's not that we've done anything wrong. It's just inherent in the gospel. And that's who we are. And by the way, that is the backdrop and sort of the emotional context of what takes place here in John chapter 9. This is the whole point of John chapter 9. A miracle happens that is problematic, that the people have issues with. Now, as we walk through this passage here, I, I want to say that there, there, there are, there's a sequence of events here. There's a sequence of events. In fact, there, there's actually one event technically and three reactions. One event and three reactions. The event here takes place in verses one through, one through seven. There is a miracle that happens. And let me just read, I will read this first paragraph. Um, John records, as he, meaning Jesus, passed by, he, that is Jesus, saw a blind man, a man blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it, it, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. 
Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. First, there's this miracle. Jesus and his disciples have gone along the way. They come along this blind man. He's a blind beggar. He's not a child. He's a man. He's an adult. He's been doing this for years. And he's standing there. And so the disciples assume that this man sinned in the womb or his parents sinned. You have to understand back during this time, if you had any physical malady, any infirmity, any, anything like that, it was considered to be the product or, or the result of personal sin. So they stopped and asked Jesus, well, what, what, why, why, why is this man, what, what sin happened here? Did this man sin? He was born blind, so the assumption is, did he sin in the womb? How could that be? Or did his parents sin? I mean, how come he's blind? Jesus corrects their thinking. He says, well, nobody sinned. Well, ultimately, yes, all, 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 all illness and that kind of thing ultimately is a product of the fall. But in terms of personal culpability, he says, no, 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 nobody sinned. He didn't sin. In fact, verse 3 tells us that this man's blindness was given for the very, this, this very moment in time in history. His, 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 his blindness was given for this moment, this time, right now, where you are, where I am, and his condition. By the way, I'll give some applications later, but I like to say, you know, suffering is always the opportunity to reveal and display the glory of God. Your suffering, your pressure, your problems, your struggles, whatever you're going through. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. This is not, this is not motivational speak here. You, whatever you're going through, it is always the opportunity to reveal the glory of God. Doesn't mean that he'll necessarily change it, but he might change us in it, but he'll be glorified through it. So that's what Jesus told them. And by the way, verse 4, when he says, day, it must work while it's day, for night comes when no one can work. I know that we kind of take that out of its context. Jesus is not speaking generally. When he says day here, he's speaking in context. That's a reference of his earthly ministry. He was saying in so many words, I'm not going to be with you in this form always. Yeah, his ministry, earthly ministry was three, three and a half years. And so he said, I'm in a hurry. I'm in a hurry. Uh, I got to work while it's day. The, allotted, uh, the time allotted to do God's will. And night is, the, is sort of the limits that God set on his will. And he's speaking primarily of the cross here, that I'm going to go and I'm going to die on the cross. And so what's happening here? By the way, verse 5, he says that he, he, the light's not going to be with you always. It doesn't mean that Jesus stops being the light. He was speaking specifically that the light shines more brightly and dramatically while he lived in their midst. 
So having said that, he defines the opportunity. Here's the opportunity here. Now secondly, underneath this whole banner of the miracle, there's the man's obedience. Now it's interesting to me that the man doesn't even ask to be healed. He didn't ask for anything. And it's, yeah, I got to be careful how I say this. It is about the man, but it's not so much about that man. It's more about Jesus and what he's going to do. And so the disciples are there. The man doesn't ask to be healed. He stands there with his, with, his, with his probably his little box or basket that he gets his alms and a few shekels and, and this kind of thing. That's how he lives. And maybe his buddy Levi has been taking him up there by the synagogue all these years. And, you know, he's just minding his own business. And Jesus comes by. And, and then, then the next thing he knows, verse 6 and 7 tells us, Jesus spits on the ground. There's no dialogue or interaction with him. He just spits on the ground. Makes mud. Out of spit. And puts it on his eyes. Every time I read this, I have this thought. And the same thoughts that you have, so don't look at me so self-righteously. I'm going, man... That's nasty. <laughs> I don't know where his mouth has been. And you know, the dude's blind, but you know, sometimes when one of your senses is lost, or so the other ones are heightened. So I'm, you know, I'm suspecting he's hearing Jesus hawk or something, man, and he's just say, uh, this doesn't sound good. <laughs> and he, and he, you know, he's, he makes the mud, and he, and he puts it on his eyes. And maybe momentarily he's going, I knew this was going to be a bad day. <laughs> so it's on his eyes. So, you know, what, what, what's, what's, what's this all of this? When he makes the clay, I don't want to make too much of this, but I, I do think, I do think there's some, this represents something. The clay that Jesus makes is a subtle reference that God made man out of dust. And not only that, it's a subtle, it's a subtle reference to Jesus' involvement in creation. That what I'm about ready to do, I made you so I can cure you. Did you hear that? I made you so I can cure you. And by the way, after he does that, he, he tells him to go to the pool of Siloam. You wonder why Jesus goes to these gymnastics because he could have said, be healed. Why go through all of this? But he sends him to the pool of Siloam, which you see in the text means sent. And those of you who were with us in Israel back in the spring, we, we were right there. You come out of Hezekiah's tomb and there's the pool of Siloam. The very spot where this took place. And the pool of Siloam means sent. The man was sent to the pool of Siloam to complete his healing. I really believe that this is a reference that Jesus was sent also. A picture that Jesus was sent by the Father to heal us of our sin sickness. So he sends him there. Why all of this? Let me just say this. Not only did the man not question what he was doing... 
But I think in Jesus spitting on the ground and making the mud and putting it on his eyes was sending a message. The message is this, how desperate are you for your deliverance? What are you willing to do to be free? What are you willing to do? Most of us want a little bit of a negotiated deliverance. We want it on our terms. Are you desperate enough to obey God? Are you desperate enough to believe him? When the prophet sends Naaman to the muddy Jordan and dunks seven times to be healed in that stinking, dirty, muddy river, he could have done it like that. But the point being, are you willing to humble yourself? Are you willing to push aside entitlement? Are you willing to lay aside place? Are you willing to do whatever the Savior says? And I think it's a statement of divine prerogative. Jesus said, I'll do whatever I want to do, and I'll do it whatever way I want to do it, because I am Lord. And the issue is you don't question who I am, you respond to what I say. So the man did it. Probably did it because what else is there to lose? Now this gets interesting. The, next, the first reaction is his neighbor. So the man comes back seeing. Oh boy. I mean, can you imagine how he felt? I mean, he was, he was born blind. This is not like Stevie Wonder who, who, who later on became blind as a kid. He, he was born blind. He, he never saw colors. And he, 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 he sees. This is astonishing. So verses 8 through uh, 12, the neighbors respond. First of all, they're shocked in verses 8 and 9. I mean, they, they just absolutely can't believe this. The neighbors, verse 8 says, uh, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? That's not a question, really. That's a statement. This can't be him. I mean, this, this really can't be. We've known him all our lives. He can't see. He wasn't faking it. He just can't. In fact, they're so shocked. The people uh, uh, thought that this was some incredible, so incredible that it was a, you know, a case of mistaken identity. Does he have an identical twin somewhere? This is amazing. In fact, that's the second response is amazement. If you want to know how in the world was this uh, even, even possible? So they said to him, verse 10, then how, how, how were your eyes open? Come on, man, sit down, tell us. I mean, we're looking, you're looking at me. I suppose he said, oh, Ben, so that's how you look. Yeah, I don't know. That's not in the text. So, how is this possible? So he, 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 the man gives him a simple factual account of what happened. Well, you know, I just 
us there by the temple, you know. Levi takes me up there, you know, every day. I mean, by the synagogue, and that's where the people come out and give me a few shekels, and, you know, that's what I do every day. And I was just there, and this guy, I hear him spitting on the ground and putting something on my eyes. He told him to go wash it in the pool of Siloam. I had to get it out of my eyes. So I went over and did it. Now look at this. That's how it happened. That's how it happened. So they asked him, well, where is he? And the man says, well, you know, he said, I don't know. Remember, I was blind when he told me to go. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what it looked like. Suppose I hear his voice, I'll know him, but I, I never saw him. I just did what he said. Oh, so now it gets a little sticky here. I mean, the neighbors are cool. The neighbors, they're, they're like his cheerleaders. They're like saying, hey, man, this is a miracle. We got to have us a block party or something here. I can't, I've never seen anything like this in my life. In fact, they were, they were, so, they were so shocked and this so baffled them because he was born blind and they knew he wasn't faking it that they thought, well, of course, they've got to take him to the religious power brokers in the community. Who are they? Well, they're the Pharisees. Uh-uh. We, we have to tell them about it. And, and they're, they're going to rejoice with us. Uh-uh. So now the third, uh, the second group of people who, uh, who react to this miracle, first is the neighbors, and now there are the critics. Well, they don't get quite the favorable response that they thought they were going to get. In fact, what t- takes place here, verses 13 through 27, is, is just amazing inquisition. There's this interrogation that goes on. Because you know, backstory here, the Pharisees, they were threatened by Jesus. Jesus is going around making these statements, I'm the light of the world, I'm the bread of life. You know, all the stuff that took place here. Uh, Jesus just had that little confrontation with them when he said, you know, you are of your father, the devil. Why? He called them a bunch of liars. This was not a, you know, they were not a friendly group. So they go to the Pharisees and tell them this great story. And they start interrogating the man. That's verses 13 through 27. Verses 13 through 14, um, because the miracle was so unusual, again, they brought him there, but Jesus actually violated the law. He violated the law. What do you mean he violated the law? Well, believe it or not, this is part of, this is part of the additional 600 and some odd laws that the Pharisees and others had created to protect the law. And one of those extra biblical laws was that you couldn't need K-N-E-A-D, you could not knead clay on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? So Jesus breaks the law. Well, he did break their law, but he is the author of the true law, so that wasn't a big deal to him. So they bring him, the man to these leaders, and the leaders are upset. Verses 15 through 16, the man gives a brief account of what happened. And that's, it. that's what he does. He stands here before these religious leaders. And uh, my man has nothing to hide. And so he says, look, this is exactly what happened. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I was blind. And so after this encounter and telling him what happened, they accused Jesus of being a false prophet. 
And the man, you know, he doesn't want to get into some theological spitting contest with them, but at, at the same time, he said, this is what happened to me, man. I, I was just by myself. I didn't answer this. I didn't, I didn't send out a request. I, I, none of this stuff. Of course, I, I've heard who he was, but I never saw him. He healed me. I'm here. My neighbors bring me before you. And now you're accusing him of being a false prophet. But the former blind man, he had a little courage about him. He disagreed with him. Verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? Now in context, what they're asking him is, you you better agree with us. Give us the right answer. He's a false prophet. But my man says here, uh, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. I might be blind, but I ain't dumb. He is a prophet. He is a prophet. Well, you can feel the heat rising here. Once again, the Pharisees are losing control. Uh, This is getting out of hand. Uh, Too many people know about this Jesus. Now his neighbors and this dude claims he was blind from his birth. Jesus heals him. And he has nerve to sit here and tell us that he's a prophet. So what did they do? Well, they sent for his parents, verses 18 through 23. They sent for his parents. Well, the parents are a little, um, parents are scared. And one of the reasons why they're afraid, you'll see this in the text, one of the reasons why they're afraid is because the word had gotten out that if anyone says that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, they were going to get kicked out of the synagogue. They were going to be ostracized. And they didn't want to go down that pike. I mean, the synagogue represented the life of the community there. And you didn't want to go down that road. And so, um, you know, they, they're, they're, they're there shaking in their boots. And they come up in front of these guys. And they ask them all these questions. And basically what they say is, look, uh, um, we didn't even know he was healed. This must have happened the other day. And we don't know anything about this. And by the way, they said, look, he's a grown man. I really don't know why you're asking us. Why don't you ask him again? He can speak for himself. Well, they get off the hook in verses 24 through 27. The religious leaders tried to pressure the man. and Bring him back in here. Bring him back in here. Now, this is not good here. They're trying to pressure my man, and he's, he's not responding and giving them the answers that they want. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. They're playing the God card here. In other words, if you don't agree with us, you're not giving glory to God. Give glory, give glory to God. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. I, you can say whatever you want to say about him. You can call him whatever you want to call him. Let me just remind you, the only thing that I do know is that I was blind, but now I see. You know, you can't argue with transformation. You, you just can't argue with that. You can't argue with change. 
You, you, you can perhaps have little didactic exchanges about content and, you know, worldview and f- all of this other kind of stuff, but you cannot argue with change. He said, I did not have a psychosomatic illness. I was stone cold blind. And the only thing I know is, before I met him, I couldn't see anything. After that man spit on, I don't know what kind of spit it was, but after he spit in the ground and put that stuff on my eyes and I went and washed it out, I can see. I can see. I can see. And by the way, I'd like to share with all of us that in times of doubt and confusion, remember what God has done in you and for you. It's not just the remembering of content that's important. You can remember, remember the content of the word of God, but also remember what he's done for you. When you get discouraged, when you get down, and you got to walk through the valleys and, 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 and things are dark for you. And you're wondering, why in the world is this stuff happening to me? Don't, don't, don't get spiritual amnesia. Go, go back, go back, go back and remember what God has done for you. Remember his faithfulness in those moments. Remember how he delivered you. Remember how he healed you. Remember how he provided for you. Remember how he intercepted you. And one of the things that gave this man courage, what gave him amazing courage was the miracle itself. Yeah, I, I, I realize fully who I'm standing in front of. I know I'm standing in front of the power brokers of Israel, and I know you have the power to ostracize me and do some very bad things in my family. I get that. But I cannot deny that I couldn't see anything the other day, and now it's 2020. I was once blind, but now I see. And by the way, that will build your faith. Somebody here needs to hear that today. Jesus Christ does not want us living in the moment. He wants us to remember the past and the promises of our future so we transform our moments. And don't forget what God has done for you. And that's what Asaph said in Psalm 78, isn't it? For he established a testimony in, in Israel and appointed a law. The character of God and the content of Scripture. Israel, don't forget the history of God in your life. Don't forget what he's done for you. And don't let the current challenges become greater than that experience. And so, my man said, I, you know... Do what you got to do, man. That's basically what he said. Do what you got to do. I just know I was blind, and now I see. Deal with that. Well, actually, they were getting a little bit on his nerves. As you read it, this is, this is kind of like, it's a little humorous. Some of y'all know I have a weird sense of humor, but you know, he just said, "Look, why do you keep asking me this stuff? Are you interested in something more than this?" So he says here, uh, verse twenty-seven. He answered them. 
I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And this is what got him in trouble. Do you also want to become his disciples? I mean, come on, man, just you and me. You, you tell me. Okay. I ain't going to tell nobody. Well, this sort of like put them, uh, uh, this put them over the top here. That was not probably, because he did get, that, that's to be read in a little sarcastic way, dude. You know, you'll do, you, you interested in becoming Jesus' disciples, which introduces, this closes the interrogation, and he slide, they slide into rejection. Well, that's it. That's it. Interesting, as you've seen these dialogues before with the religious leaders, whenever Jesus puts them on the spot, and forces them to deal with uh, uh, something that they, 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 they don't want to deal with. They get boxed in the corner. R- rather than agreeing that, yeah, you may have a point or this kind of thing, they get very personal. And they resort to this again. So what they do is that they insult the guy. They insult him. Verse 28, they reviled him saying, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, oh, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Hmm. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does, does his will, God listens to him. This is this former blind man talking. Never since the world began has it uh, been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he can do nothing. I, I want you, this is brilliant. Listen to this blind man's logic. You say he's not from God? And actually, the ex-blind beggar proceeded to address their blindness. And basically, it doesn't say this in the text, But it's assumed, I'm just telling you what you taught me. You you taught me these things. He makes three assertions here, three things. This is his logic. Number one, no one had ever heard of a man born blind receiving his sight, okay? Not around here at least. Secondly, he says, God does not grant the request of the unrighteous. You taught me that. Generally, God doesn't hear the prayers of the unrighteous unless it's a prayer for forgiveness. And then he says, thirdly, Jesus is from God, otherwise he could not do the miracle. Well, now they're upstaged by this former blind beggar. So what do they do? They insult him and throw him out of the synagogue. He's kicked out. You know, verse 34 says, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. This is not to be taken from an objective theological perspective. This is a nasty statement. They're, they're just being nasty. They're being insulting. You, you look at you. The ellipsis is this. I, well, well, we're righteous, we're pure, we're the standard bearers. Nobody ever questions our veracity or our conclusions about anything. How dare you? You're, you're born in utter sin. 
What did he say to the man? And you would teach us? And they cast him out. Pride and avarice and will make you do some very irrational, stupid things. Now, feel this, if you will. Think about this. Think about this man. He didn't ask for any of this. He asked for none of this. He was just doing what he does every day. He didn't call Jesus. He didn't ask for them to come by. He didn't beg for any healing. He was outside the synagogue with his box, getting a few shekels, doing what he does every day, trying to make a living. Jesus stops by, asked him for nothing, answered him nothing, hears him spit on the ground, puts the mud on his eyes, does what he says, and now he's seen. And the next thing he knows, they've kicked him out of the synagogue. What did I do? What did I do? You don't like Jesus, and Jesus did this for me, so you hate Jesus, and you hate me. What did I do? I don't want to get into some persecution complex, don't get me wrong, and I'm not going down this road too far because I do think some Christians in our culture do have a persecution complex. But some of the stuff that happens to Christians in our society today, we didn't do anything wrong. Why why are you assuming that we're bigoted? Why, why, why are you assuming that we're homophobic because we believe in marriage? Why are you assuming? And this is where this guy is. So you disenfranchised me. You kicked me out of the synagogue. And I didn't ask for any of this. And now comes the conversion. You know, um, I've heard a number of messages on this passage, and sometimes the first paragraph, they'll preach on that and say, this is where he became a follower. No, he wasn't a follower. Not yet. Not yet. He wasn't a follower yet. He became a follower after he was booted out. Because here is his conversion. This is what takes place here. Verses 35 through 41. It is sweet. First, there's compassion. And listen to these words. Verse 35 says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him. Jesus went looking for him. He went looking for him. When you study the life of Christ, you always, you're always struck by the fact that Jesus is always looking for the rejected. Jesus is looking for the rejected. Jesus is looking for those who are aware of their utter sinfulness, who are aware of the fact that they've been somehow or another alienated from him. So in his alienation, our tender Savior comes looking for him. 
looking for him. If you have a desire in your heart and you're wondering who is a true and living God, I gotta tell you, Jesus is looking for you. And Jesus finds this man broken. And he asked him a question. Knowing that the man had been rejected, Jesus takes the initiative. He asks him a question. Verse 35, he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? By the way, the expression Son of Man really is a statement of, it, it sounds weird, but it's a statement of Jesus' deity. The Son of Man is an expression that summarizes the incarnation when God became man. Son of Man. And so Jesus just asked him the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is a call to commitment. He was calling the man to commit his life to him. Now, I love the guy's honesty because he, he says to him, uh, he answered, and, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? I want to believe, but who is he? And I love it here, verse 37. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I love it. Jesus demonstrated who he was when he healed him. Miracles are not necessarily conversions. Don't get, that, don't get that twisted. When he healed him, Jesus demonstrated who he was. However, now he reveals who he is. Well, who is this son of man? I don't know if Jesus did this or not, but I can imagine our Savior smiling Maybe putting his hand on his shoulders and winking at him. I'm your man. I'm your man. He's, and what does he do? The man worships. He worships. That's where surrender comes. He worships. The synagogue was a place where he and his family worshiped. But Jesus is the person that he worships. Yeah, the synagogue had truth and that kind of thing. But I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And the man worships him. You know, it's interesting as you read the Gospels, you read back over in John chapter 6, verse 37, when Jesus says that he who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. You'll never read anywhere in the Gospels of Jesus turning down any legitimate seeker. Anyone who comes to Jesus, he does not throw away well Jesus says a few other things to round things out and actually he loops back around in verses 39 through 41 he actually kind of like tells us who's really blind he doesn't mention their names but he's referring back to his interrogators and the religious leaders no 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 you're cool you're cool you're cool it's these other folks, it's these people who reject the evidence of their own spiritual blindness, who refuse to humble themselves. 
They're so much into themselves. They're narcissistic and they're prideful. You know, let me, let me say this. Pride, there are two things that we have got to be careful of and they're both related. Pride and narcissism. Narcissism is an extreme expression of pride. Pride and narcissism always produces irrational behavior. Because there is, there, it, pride and narcissism, they're proprietary. They're afraid of losing power. And that's exactly where these religious leaders were. And Jesus says they're going to be judged. Well, let me give three lessons as I land a plane here. Three takeaways. So I want us to think about, number one is this. Don't expect your transformation to be welcomed by everybody. That may sound like a very simple statement, but we live in a little Christian subculture and this kind of thing. But don't expect your transformation, don't expect your life change, don't expect the things that take place in your heart and life to be cheered or accepted by everyone. Don't be surprised. The second lesson is this. Don't boast of your spiritual sight. It's a gift. Be humbly grateful for it, but don't boast of your sight. Boast of the giver of your sight. Don't go around bragging. And I I find too many Christians do this. Don't go around bragging about how much you know and how insightful you are, how mature you may be, or what you might know, that kind of thing. That's a telltale sign of uh, you're you're kissing a little spiritual arrogance at that point. Don't brag about that. Most of the giver of your sight. And the third thing I would say as a takeaway is that give others what's been given to us. Sight. We are emissaries, ambassadors, and we offer sight. And I, I, you've heard me say this here before. We, we need to be careful of our demeanor as Christians in this world. I know that there's plenty of stuff going on out in the culture and society that we want to lob some grenades and we go on these rants and we get upset about it and this kind of thing. But we need to, need to keep in mind what Chuck Colson said many years ago, and that is that, you know, don't get mad at a blind man for stepping on your foot. And rather than being so angry, we ought to flip that around and look at it as an opportunity to speak hope and love and light into the culture and world in which we live. If you don't like the darkness, well, turn on your flashlight. Anybody can write blogs and go on rants on Facebook and social media about what's wrong. It doesn't take something brilliant about that. Get up early in the morning with your adult Dr. Denton's and a cup of coffee and crack your knuckles and let's blow them away. Oh. We need to be emissaries of light. That we're those who have found the light. The light found us. We were standing there, beggars. He spit on the ground. Touched our eyes. Washed us. And let's share that with others. Let's stand together.
If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, right now you can be. I say this often here almost every Sunday. All you have to say is, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I turn from my sin and I trust you. And you'll step into your heart and life. For those of us with any prayer needs whatsoever, anything that you want God to do for you, there'll be elders, Stephen ministers, some staff are in the service. We'll be up front at the, at the end of the service and we'd love to pray with you. If you're visiting, I'll be back over here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy and love in our lives. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us this account. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have given us sight. We didn't give it to ourselves. You gave it to us. What a gift. May we be eternally grateful. May we honor you, Lord. May we be humble authentically. May we be your your vessels of hope to a dying world. And even to those who criticize us, Lord, may we not push away from them, but may we keep holding the light. Oh, God, dismiss us from this place, but give us great opportunities to serve you this week on our jobs, in our communities, in our relationships, Lord. May the light of the gospel shine through us. In Jesus' name, amen.